From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with retired police officer and law enforcement consultant Johnny Costa on the current state of local law enforcement in America. And following that, tech entrepreneur Talib Graves-Mans joins us to discuss the emergence of North Carolina as the Silicon Valley of the East. That's next on The Public Morality. There has been much discussion over the past year about the role of police. From Ferguson to Baltimore and beyond, the relationship between the police and the community, especially communities of color, has been a nationwide topic. Recently, the Black Lives Matter movement put forth a 10-point plan to improve policing across the country. But is it that simple? Being part of local municipalities, developing a one-size-fits-all program can present some challenges. But are there things that every police department can and should embrace? Joining me today is Johnny Costa, a retired police officer serving some 30 years in the San Jose Police Department. He now serves as a consultant and instructor for police departments across the country. Johnny Costa, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me, Byron. Oh, my pleasure. Um, if I asked you to define effective policing, how would you define that? Uh, you know, for, for me, that's a, a really easy one, easy one, having been in the business for over 30 years and continuing in a, in a teaching consulting role out here in California. Um, without question, uh, I've always prescribed by that belief that the police are the community. The community is the police. We're a reflection and, a, and an extension of that. And the more that we can make real connections, um, it's, it's those type of relationships that build trust, that uh, prompt dialogue and a better understanding for the police to understand first and foremost, what issues uh, that the community is concerned about. Um, and then also uh, to give the community a better understanding of how and why the police operate and how they can work together towards solving problems. Because one of the frustrating things for me was, uh, you know, you'd get called in at 2 in the morning in a, in a family disturbance that took uh, I don't know how many generations to get there, and there sometimes was this overriding feeling that we're supposed to solve the problem. You know, a 25-year-old officer right out of college is supposed to walk in there and, and, and solve family problems and domestic problems that have, that have taken forever to create, and it's just not the case. The police cannot be the sole solution to issues. It has to be a collaborative effort. There has to be teamwork. But that never happens unless we begin to have a dialogue, a better understanding, and a greater trust. Uh, and based on your experience, uh, what is the gap between what you just described and what the public uh, perception is? And when we talk about public perception, you, you probably need to break that up as well and what, and what that is. But just... Yeah, absolutely. You know, Byron, I, I think a, a big part of the gap is created when we get into that, uh, that us versus them mentality. And, and that applies, that applies to, to everybody involved there. 
um, where the police feel like they have to circle the wagons and there's not enough public support and there's this inherent suspicion. And you know what? The impact is a two-way street. That same type of, uh, of reaction can... Uh, you know, can stem from the community as well. Um, and really, it's overcoming that us versus them. Um, the police can't operate as an occupying force, or at least giving people the impression that we're operating as an operating for, as a, an occupying force. And I think one of the real dynamics. Um, I don't know about the rest of the country. I, I know. Uh, People have different thoughts on this, but in California especially, where uh, here in the Bay Area, for example, where uh, real estate prices and the prospects of uh, finding a, a reasonable uh, rent to pay or especially to buy a home in the Bay Area proper, um, you know how high the real estate prices are. So um, on, a, on a police officer's salary, um, you know, these men and women are, are moving further and further out from the communities they serve. When I started in the 70s, um, for the most part, there was a much higher percentage of officers who lived in the cities that they worked, and they were part of the community, Byron, right? So their kids are going to school together. Um, they're going to the same uh, they're going to the same uh, uh, churches and synagogues and, 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 and religious activities together. The kids are playing Little League ball and, uh, and, and soccer together. They're involved. They're part of the community. And it was that relationship that could extend greater trust because it's a relationship outside of police work. And, 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 and first and foremost, uh, I, I remind people all the time, we're talking about the human condition. Cops are people first. Uh, they're not robots. They're not machines. They're not this uh, pre-programmed uh, mechanism that is going to uh, um, always, uh, always work at a perfect level despite their better efforts and training and everything else. There's that human condition that plays into it. But I really think that officers having to move further away, I mean, we have cops that are driving an hour, hour and a half, one way to get to work, and they're not part of the community. They're not part of that fabric. And that disconnect, I think, um, transfers to officers, you know, maybe not feeling the ownership they would if they were living in the community that they serve. Make sense? It makes perfect sense. What what, what occurred to me as, as you were talking, though, is the, in California in particular, it's you and I both know that it's very, very difficult giving the rising housing prices uh, for officers to live. And you're in San Jose, so I can imagine uh, if the community said, we want our police officers uh, in, in, in Palo Alto uh, to live here when we know 1,600 square feet is about eight, is about a million dollars a year, is about a million dollar house price. Exactly. And you're not going to make that mortgage payment on, a, on an officer's salary or a firefighter or, you know what, most teachers and, uh, and, and service workers and a lot of other people are going to have a hard time uh, making that happen. Well, well, I mean, this is more, this goes beyond the, our topic, but is there something that municipalities can do, uh, given the importance of having officers as, as part of the fabric of the community at the same time, deal with some of these economic realizations that, that prohibit them from being part of the community? 
Yeah, you, you know what? I know there have been some city governments, even the uh, the municipality that I worked in, that uh, um, the city government talked about uh, maybe providing certain subsidized housing or assistance to be able to get those uh, those type of uh, professionals to be able to work uh, and live in the town that they serve, um, but. You know that all costs money, Byron. Right. And right. and I, I can't say I haven't seen anything to say that that has developed a great deal of traction. Put it that way. There's been some discussion about that. I know that it's recognized as an issue, but um, has it taken hold in any meaningful way? No. My perception is no. I I, I think you still have officers that'll drive in from the Central Valley. And work a midnight shift, and uh, and uh, e- even sleep in their van conversion, and uh, you know try to get a few hours sleep before they have to get up and go to court, or come back to uh, come back to work that night, and end up uh, taking a shower and suiting up in the locker room before they go back on duty. So I, I think there's probably as much, if not more, than that, than there are municipalities uh, arranging for low interest loans and uh, setting aside. Housing um, it, would that be ideal? Absolutely, but it's not something easily done. Obviously, but we certainly see the impact when it's not done in, in situations such as Ferguson, uh, Baltimore earlier this year. We see when that mm-hmm. lack of trust sort of spills out into in, the public into the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 those are great illustrations. I tell you, it's it's a it's a tremendous challenge, and there's no there's no single answer or single act that any police department or city government or uh, or advocates that are going to take. It has to be uh, uh, this collective approach. And and one of the observations I make is during difficult times like that, that if first of all, it's the police department's responsibility, Byron, I believe, to be the ones. Uh, being proactive with that outreach with the community. We have to be the ones to make that initial step and go more than halfway to build that trust because inherently, uh, you know, there's going to be, whether it's a certain amount of intimidation or people don't feel comfortable or they don't want to waste an officer's time, whatever it is, whatever that feeling is, up to and including distrust, um, overcoming that that uniform can be a huge barrier, that alone. And and I, I always told my young officers that I was uh, uh, that I was able to supervise and mentor is that you know don't wait for the public to take the first step. You have to be the one to start breaking down those barriers because you can't expect people we're not that approachable and so you have to be generous with your time you have to go out of your way to break down those barriers and begin to develop those relationships but here's the thing and you mentioned ferguson and baltimore byron is you know what you can't wait until there's this huge challenge and fail and issue that people are facing. You can't wait until then. Um, you know, you have to make that investment ahead of time. So when those issues occur, when there's that debate that happens, you know what? You hope that there's already some type of relationship in place. 
And I think that that creates a more positive dialogue in the aftermath of these controversial incidents that happen, uh, that there's a greater level of trust and patience and consideration because people know each other. But police departments, sheriff's departments, law enforcement agencies, they have to be the ones to take the initiative to reach out, to build the relationships, to become a part of the fabric of the community. If you wait until there's uh, uh, an explosion of anger and controversy, it's too late. Man, you know, we've talked about it before. I equate it to like parenting, right? Not to make this a big parental thing, but it's like a parent. What does a good parent do? They're involved with their kids' lives, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about parenting the community, so... so, uh, so don't throw any rocks at me just yet with that. I will, um, but I'll, I'll be sure to give everybody your address after you finish those comments. <laughs> you know, th- th- that, that's not the th- that's that's not the the slant I'm putting on this. But a good parent isn't a good parent just because they show up for the recitals and the um, the little league games. You got to be there every night. You got to be a part of your kid's life. You have to, uh, uh, you know, to be approachable. There has to be be a relationship there. And you don't just show up for the good times and the bad times. Police departments, you don't just call a meeting every quarter, some community meeting, and hand out lemonade and cookies and coffee and uh, have this formal discussion. No, you got to be there during the ordinary times. you got to be a part of people's lives. you got to know the community. And, and that's where we begin to, to strengthen that foundation. Well, you know, uh, just staying with Ferguson for a moment, I, I think that as you were talking about, and we, and we certainly um, are aware of the spillover, I, one of the outcomes of that has been um, with a number of people, but in particular the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, is to come up with a number of items, and yet those items sort to or those recommendations portray the police as a one-size-fits-all unit when they are multiple, multiple local community entities. What's the question, Byron? Well, my question is, how realistic is it for us to sort of try to nationalize, you know, the the, the 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 police department when they are these local entities and each one is different? What 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 may work in San Jose may not work in Butte, Montana, may not work in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Or and not just municipality to jurisdiction, but also also state to state. You know, uh, police departments uh, in any given state, you know, adhere to a set of laws. But departments have have different cultures, uh, and and the culture of that department and the style of policing, I believe, should should reflect the community they serve. And it, it, it's it's as simple as that. So, it, is are there certain aspects of policing? like some of the things that we've talked about already, that really apply universally? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But are there things that are unique to a community that may work in one place and not in another? That's equally true. Yeah, but I I also know we've had previous conversations. I know that you have talked about some of the calls that you've gotten from, say, a Stanford student who happened to be African-American, also happened to be in a neighborhood where the people seeing him outside didn't think he belonged in that neighborhood. Talk about how, how in your work, you would handle something like that. Well, and, and, and the, the education and dialogue, you know, you know, we tend to look at it 
maybe too closely at the police relationship with uh, with you know someone who stands accused or we pulled over for a violation. We also have to look at the relationship and the dialogue and how it uh, uh, and, and how we can uh, help people understand what the limitations and responsibilities we have for somebody reporting a crime. And, um, you know, for example, there, there would be times, and I recall when, when we get a, uh, a call of a suspicious person, and the description given was that, uh, that he was African American or Hispanic, and uh, that they're walking down the street, and the, the call would come in, and it would be dispatched to officers. And, and there were times, you know, not an overwhelming number, but there were times I'd kind of have to call the time out, and I'd ask dispatch, okay, before we send people out there, and I'm speaking from a supervisory perspective, okay, so what's suspicious about that call? Um, why, why do they think the person's suspicious? And sometimes there wouldn't be much information beyond, um, okay, uh, he's just walking down the street. Well, you know, we're, we're equally concerned with protecting everybody's constitutional rights, too. And before I have an officer, even if they're responding to a call, we still have a responsibility to qualify that, right? So um, even if it was an anonymous caller, um, I would try to... Uh, uh, to talk to the reporting party, and I'd say, hey, before I send officers out there and detain somebody and, you know, even temporarily take their freedom away, can you give us some justification of why you feel they're suspicious beyond the uh, description and walking down the street? And they go, oh, we don't recognize him from the neighborhood, and we've had cars broken into recently, and uh, he just didn't look like he belonged. Well, you know what? The last time I checked, somebody just not looking like they belong or uh, a member of an ethnic minority, no, that's not enough uh, reasonable suspicion by any stretch to detain somebody. And sometimes I would uh, just explain to people, I go, hey, look, uh, unless you can tell me that you observed them in some behavior that made you believe that they've committed a crime, um, are committing a crime, or about to, um, or that they match the description of somebody that was uh, that was wanted for a crime or any one of a number of things, no, then we're not going to go talk to that person. We're, we're not going to detain them, and I think that's a responsibility we have to everybody. So there's a challenge of, of really managing the public perception of things sometimes, too. We encourage people to call the police, obviously, for suspicious activity, but we got to qualify it and be judicious about it. And I just want to add, we are talking uh, about an area where you serve that uh, is is viewed, at least nationally, as a very liberal area. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, w I would say so. Very, very uh, well-educated, um, one of the uh, higher, certainly the higher income areas um, on a national level. So when we're talking about public perception and, and someone's perception of fear or what they feel is suspicious, um, you know what? It, it, it doesn't matter where you're working, who you are, what your background is. Um, you, you know, not everybody is going to process that in a way where the police can take action, and, and we have to have the, uh, the ability and a sense of responsibility to say sometimes, no, we're not doing that. Well, um, one thing I want I want to touch on because I know it's something you've given some 
thought to in terms of officer training is I know you have some feelings about uh, when law enforcement encounters people that may have some mental health challenges. Talk about that, if you will. Yeah, and that's becoming, uh, that's really becoming a, a huge challenge, uh, not just in the Bay Area or California, but nationwide. I mean, you can, it seems like you can pick up uh, uh, a newspaper or turn on the news on any given day, and there's some, um, um, some story of a, of, of an officer encountering somebody that's in crisis, and, and I'll tell you, um, th- there has to be. Th- there's no. There's no easy solution to that either. With with any of these challenges, Byron, there's no easy solution. Like I said earlier, there's certainly not one solution. But um, you know, system wide, we have to strengthen um, how we're coping as as a as a society in in in, in coping with the, the challenges uh, of uh, of people with mental illness that uh, that the behavior oftentimes can rise to the level for the most part low level crimes but also more serious crimes and you know do I think by virtue of a diagnosis that somebody who's mentally ill is more prone to violence no from from the training I've had that statistically speaking, that there's a weak association at best. But when you add the challenges of people that are diagnosed mentally ill and dual diagnosed with substance abuse problems, um, uh, alcoholism, self-medicating, then, yeah, there can definitely be uh, a more unpredictable um, encounter there. Um, and. What, what's funny is when we talk about system-wide uh, rehabilitation that has to happen um, in California, and I think it's true for probably most of the country, that the leading provider of mental health services typically are the county jails and the state prison system. And i got to tell you, just looking at that alone, um, we have to do better than that. You know, we have to do better than that. Um, in California, uh Deinstitutionalization alone of mental health care facilities in the second half of the last century has reduced the number of psychiatric beds and services available to people who are mentally ill significantly. So you know what? There's not enough services. There's um, uh, there's 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 not enough. Uh, of hospitals and caretakers and and clinicians and emergency psychiatric uh, response teams that are available to deal with the growing challenges that we have. Um, And not to be long-winded on this, but uh, the other aspect of it is that the police departments can't just accept that and move forward with the status quo. So there have been uh, tremendous strides in increasing an officer's ability through continuous training and advanced training in crisis intervention to give officers um, a greater set of skills to recognize somebody who is experiencing a mental health crisis as opposed to being under the influence of methamphetamine or being drunk. uh, to recognize that there may be a mental health aspect to this and then to give them training on how to respond to that and de-escalate that situation as opposed to uh, always taking control as the first default response. 
Obviously, there are times officers will have to take control um, right from the get-go. But many other times, if they can gain a tactical advantage and have the uh, the ability to slow things down, then through crisis intervention training, de-escalation training, um, a better understanding of how somebody in crisis uh, may respond to a situation or a question or an approach to try to steer that to a safer, successful conclusion. Just recently, um, here in California, uh, Senate Bill 11 was recently signed by the governor, which uh, in part increases uh, uh, the investment of time and advanced training that officers will receive specifically in this area. And it's in recognition of that the challenges are huge. And as first responders, they have to be ready to deal with that. Well, I just want to just follow up with one thing. Uh, talk to us about, you know, when you're saying taking control of a situation or assessing the situation properly, we're, we're not talking about the officer doesn't have that much time to assess that situation. So what, what are we really talking about in terms of time elapsed in one of these given situations? Well, you know what, Byron, that's the thing about police work. The essence of the job is that there's no two situations alike. They may have similarities, but an officer has to be vigilant and prepared to read and react to something in a split second. And depending on the decision they make, um, whether it's a tactical decision, an investigative decision, um, a, uh, a communicative approach to it, whatever decision they make could determine, obviously it's going to determine the outcome and the response from the person they're dealing with. And ideally, especially with somebody who's in the midst of a psychotic break or um, or in a mental health crisis, ideally what we want to try to do is slow things down. And, and, and what we teach and encourage officers to, to remember is that if you have the tactical advantage, especially if time and distance, right, if you can gain that initial tactical advantage, then time and talk is cheap slow things down. There's no clock. You don't get extra points for how quick you can uh, resolve this. It's about resolving it safely. And if it takes extra time, then that's what we have to focus on. Uh, but, but in other cases, it could change in the blink of an eye. And an officer has uh, uh, literally seconds, moments to make uh, what could become a critical decision. Johnny Casa, I certainly want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today. And I can see as issue, issues go forward, we will definitely have you back on. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. The pleasure is all mine. Take care, Byron. Silicon Valley is home to many of the world's largest high-tech corporations and thousands of startup companies. If you started a high-tech-related business any time in the past 20 years, it certainly would have benefited you to at least consider giving it a go in the Valley. But what about today? Where are the areas that are most appealing for 21st century wildcatters, those willing to combine risk, courage, and confidence in their abilities to find the next mother load of technological innovation? And will it increase opportunities for people of color? To discuss this with me is Talib Graves-Mans. He is an entrepreneur in residence in Durham, North Carolina, part of the Code 2040 Project. 
Caleb Gravesman. Welcome to the Public Morality. Well, thanks for having me, Byron. It's my pleasure. Let's start with you being part of of the inaugural class that was backed by Google along with Code 2040 in three cities that provides minorities, entrepreneur uh, stipends for one year along with free office space. Tell us about that project. All right, so I'll give you a little bit of backstory on Code 2040. Sure. So Code 2040 is a nonprofit organization based out of San Francisco, which kind of grew out of the need um, to get more specifically blacks and Latino into tech jobs in Silicon Valley. So Code 2040 has been around for going on four years um, right there in Silicon Valley. was created by Laura Weidman Powers and Tristan Walker, um, who met in graduate school at Stanford. And through their conversations and their networks, they realized it was a big problem in the number of students um, getting into the high-profile tech jobs in the Valley. And they decided to come up with an initiative to, to fix that, to bring that talent out. So for the first three years of the organization, the team has been focused on finding high-potential students and talent from all over the United States, um, putting them through an application process, and then bringing them out to Silicon Valley for internships during the summer um, and fellowship throughout the year to prepare them to take these jobs in the Valley within the tech sector. Um, so far, the organization has graduated close to 250 um, students from various communities all over the United States into these jobs in the Valley, and these jobs in the Valley being Google, Facebook, uh, Twilio, Twitter, um, and some of your early stage startups that have high potential and growth. And so speak about your specific uh, uh, fellowship. Yeah, so so what happened um, about a year ago, um, the Code 2040 team thought, well, how can we make a bigger impact with, with entrepreneurs, right, versus college students? How can we grow that? kind of grow that footprint, knowing that the numbers are dismally low inside of Silicon Valley for your black and Latino founders, right? How can we provide them with the support? So they came up with the um, Entrepreneur in Residence Program, right, which is backed by Google for Entrepreneurs. Um, and what this program is designed to do is to um, find, uh, in this pilot program, to find uh, three high-growth potential uh, black and brown startups in three different cities for this pilot year. See, at Austin, Chicago, and in Durham. I'm, I'm the entrepreneur in residence in Durham outside of American Underground. And what American Underground is one of nine Google for Entrepreneurs uh, powered tech hubs. 250 companies there. Um, really great community going on in Durham there. Back to back Google Demo Day winners. And a lot of interest from. Um, explain, I'm going to cut you off, explain what a, a Google. Uh was it Google Double Day? Google Demo Day. Demo, Demo Day, I'm sorry. Explain what that is. So what Google Demo Day is, is it is a platform to bring out high-growth potential entrepreneurs, right, not specifically for minorities, but bringing them out to the valley. They bring a group of VCs out, and you get up and pitch your idea. The VCs are venture capitalists. Venture capitalists. You get out and pitch your idea. Um, the crowd votes. Uh, the judges vote. And once you get selected, you get um, investment in your company. I think $100,000 is the amount of money they're giving to the company. So... The fact that two companies came out of American Underground and Durham back-to-back years of one Google Demo Day, I think, speaks volumes about the tenacity of our entrepreneurs within the Durham community and their ability to communicate their value proposition on a, on a broader national scale. Well, I want to I segue. Uh, that's a perfect time to do it. That um, Inc. Magazine uh, cited the Raleigh-Durham area as number two in terms of up-and-growing cities beyond Silicon Valley. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. 
but let me put a kind of a historical context to why sure. I think one of the one of the main reasons why that happened. It has a lot to do with RTP, right? And it has a lot to do with the RTP uh, Research Triangle Park. Okay. So, um, in the 1950s, a group of business people in the private sector um, were looking at kind of the macroeconomics of the nation, and specifically North Carolina, um, with its roots in um, textiles and manufacturing. And they projected in the future that those were not going to be very sustainable um, business business ventures, uh, and that it needed to be much broader. So those group, that group of private individuals and business people, collectively came up with the idea of Research Triangle Park and designed that to attract the jobs of the future. And I think when they did that in the 50s and going into the 60s, they were able to attract IBM, which is one of the largest companies that come into the Research Triangle Park. And as a result of that, I think that kind of had laid the groundwork years ago for this area being one of the technology hubs. So, technolo- so this whole technology hub is something that's been in existence, you know, for what's roughly almost six decades. Yes, yes. And now you're seeing an outgrowth of more of your startup entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. which I would consider is kind of a relatively new term that people are coining now for small groups of people coming together with big ideas, trying to, to, to escalate them and to find funding to grow those businesses. Um, I think that the Inc. 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 Magazine ranking Durham is, is important because of that historical context, but also you got to look at organically what's in the community. So within a 25-mile radius, within an RDU area, you have major institutions. You have Duke University, you have NC State. You have UNC Chapel Hill, you have Shaw University, you have North Carolina Central University. So every year we're churning out lots of young talent, right, um, all within one area. So organically you kind of get this pool of people and this chasm of energy that I think is leading to a lot of the opportunities and innovation that are coming out now. Is this just an organic process or is, is there also some elected, sort of elected leadership along with that to support uh, these, these efforts. Yeah, so I think fundamentally a lot of it is, is organic. Mm-hmm. When you think about the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, I think it's ranked number nine or number ten nationally for the highest IQ per capita, right? That's kind of organically coming out within the region. Right. That kind of mixed with some of the historical context of the Raleigh-Durham area and innovation and textiles, people coming up people really being creatives, coming up with ideas, I think is part of the organic process as well. That, coupled with the support from the political scene, I think has helped make the Raleigh-Durham area attractive to investors and attractive to creatives. Um, The mayor of of Durham, his name is Bill Bell, he's been in office for quite a few years now, um, and he's been known to be um, an innovator and bringing in some of the public sector to help advance the private sector in developing these businesses. He's an engineer by trade and worked at IBM. So I think fundamentally having somebody like him in political office that gets it, that understands tech and what it can mean for the entrepreneurial ecosystem is very important. So we started by um, referencing um, um, the Entrepreneurial Residence Program as something that was funded by Google, which is obviously rooted in Silicon Valley. And for all the things about Silicon Valley, what we also know is that I believe last year only 1% of uh, venture capitalist dollars went to companies headed by African Americans, and I believe those are similar numbers for the Hispanic community as well. Do you uh, foresee those types of statistics changing 
uh, in the Raleigh-Durham area, or is this an unfortunate phenomenon that's bigger than geography? I think that to that w- one thing that gets in the way of advancement in, in jobs and tech and also in venture capital is the fact that people have unconscious biases, right? Unconscious biases um, as well as inherent personal biases, I think, get in the way of people's ability to to want to invest in uh, people's ventures as well as inv- invest in their careers. When you say unconscious bias, what, what, what specifically are you talking about? Um, so the idea, of, the idea of unconscious bias is that all of us as human beings fundamentally approach the world from our worldview, right? And sometimes our worldview is tainted and can get in the way of progress. So I'm going to give you an example of, of unconscious bias that happened in the Silicon Valley on a product team. So there was a, a I'm not going to name the company, um, in Silicon Valley that developed one of the early camera phones. Mm-hmm. And with this camera phone, um, they created it, they shipped it to the market, and within the first 90 days, they had about, let's say, 7% returns of that product. And the reason why is the customers were complaining that when they took their pictures, they were upside down. Nobody could figure it out. They sent it back to the company. The R&D team worked on it for another three months trying to figure out what happened. Then eventually they had an aha moment when they realized that that 7% of returns they had was in correlation to people who were left-handed. So the people that were taking the photos, the 7% were left-handed people. And that company never had a left-handed product person within their, within their division. So that's an example of unconscious um, bias that can affect business, right? Not knowing what your limitations are because you don't have a representation inside of the room from various cultures, from various communities. And that affects the bottom line. So... On that, why, why is it important? This speaks specifically to people of color. Why is it important to have people of color in technology? I think from an innovation standpoint, right? When I hear people talk about diversity, specifically in race, it kind of turns me off. Because fundamentally what we're talking about is diversity in thought and the way people approach problems. And I think that goes back to their various experiences in life, Right? Um, having a diverse team of men, women, different races, and different ages, I think, gives a business person that's really thinking about it an unfair advantage on developing products and developing people and developing a company. And I think that's paramount in taking us into the new innovation economy. So what are the impediments that make, make it difficult for African Americans and Hispanics to rise in technology? One, I says, is access. Two access points, access to education and um, access to capital to grow their businesses. On the education side, I think that our public school system um, and our private school system need to do a better job of training the trainers, right? So that's bringing in the instructors and preparing them for the jobs of the future. What level are we talking about? Is that, We're is talking that college? Is that high school? Or? I'm going all the way down to elementary school. Okay. Right. One of the programs that I'm a supporter of and we are working with in the Durham community is called Black Girls Code organization it's national started in silicon valley which is about getting young black girls right um, into computer coding as early as seven years old so they have a program between for girls between the ages of seven and 17 which teaches them hard coding and soft coding hard coding being hey how do you build a robot right with legos all the way up to soft coding and how do you build a, a website but getting them attracted to these type of careers and showing them that they can build things at a very early age i think is important 
and laying that foundation and that interest that they can follow on all the way through their, to their careers. Okay. So, so that was the first access point. There was the second access point that you were talking about. Money, right, access to capital. There's just a statistic floating around. Don't quote me on it, but something like um, – You're going to be heard by uh, God knows how many people, so you're quoting yourself on it. Go ahead. All right, well, <laughs> something like, um, you know, one out of nine um, black or brown entrepreneurs – gets a chance to talk to a venture capitalist about investment, a major venture capitalist. And then when capital is given, it's something like 60 cents on the dollar compared to their white counterparts. It's unacceptable. So that is an access to capital um, obstacle that we have to overcome. It's unlocking revenue streams locally and nationally to invest in early stage and ideas to turn them into profitable businesses. But we're told... I mean, I know I've heard people say this uh, multiple times, that Silicon Valley is the ultimate meritocracy. Sounds like you're saying something very, very different, or maybe to some degree it is, but there's something, is there something lacking? I'd say it's a meritocracy for those that are at the table. Um, there's kind of a, you know, a, um, a phenotype for what it is to be successful in Silicon Valley, and a lot of times we don't fit that mold. So I disagree that Silicon Valley is totally a meritocracy at, at its stage. Uh, so are there cultural barriers? Or are there just people who are saying, well, I'm just not going to invest in a black company, or I don't think black people or Hispanic people can do it? What's, what's underneath that? That goes back to the biases, right? So there are people that are saying, eh, I'd rather invest with people that I know, right? So one of the biggest problems that you brought up earlier, which Code 2040 is helping to solve for, is that, Within Silicon Valley and some of your other tech communities, it's really insular. It becomes this vicious circle, right? So Stanford's the pipeline to the jobs in Silicon Valley. Cal Berkeley is the pipeline to jobs in Silicon Valley, which ultimately leads to the venture capital. So they're all feeding each other. They're not trying to let other people in, uh, other communities in. And um, I think that is what will lead to stagnant growth. So uh, obviously money is a piece of it, but, but, but talk to me about your thoughts of what just would, that could potentially change this climate. Because it's, if I'm understanding you correctly, what I hear you saying is that if this climate is not changed, it's actually America as a whole that, that will, 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 will be to their detriment, to its detriment. Exactly. Um, it's the job of all of us right now in America to use all of our resources to the best use case possible. And we're not doing that. We're leaving people out of the conversation and the innovation economy. And that's not good for where we're trying to go in America as, an, as we compete on an international scale. So um, before I let you go, let's talk about uh, Rainbow Me. Yes, so Rainbow Me is a, a startup, early stage startup, uh, started in Durham between myself, our visionary founder, Kia Johnson, and Bernard Bell. And what Rainbow Me is, it's all about increasing diversity in children's entertainment. Right. It goes back down to the data. Like 50% of the kids in the United States right now, between the ages of 2 and 12, are either Latino, Indian, Asian, or African American. But if you turn on the tube or you turn on the YouTube, less than 8% representation of children as main characters are kids of color. And that's a problem. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because, you know, we all know that children are in their formative years. They rely on a lot of media and different forms of entertainment to form the views of themselves and what that means for their future. And the fact that children can't tune in right now and see 
a black female scientist, a Latino female doctor, you know, an Asian, you know, astronaut. Those are problems in children creating their worldview and their expectations of themselves and their community. We're trying to solve for that. So what we are is a digital platform um, focused on video. And a digital Prim- platform is? Uh, it's a website, okay. right, where parents and can feel safe allowing their children to go in and watch content that's both fun and educational with a focus on cross-cultural themes. So um, is this uh, to the exclusion uh, of, say, white children? Uh, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, This is open to the entire world. Well, tell me how, um, I think I I hear you saying this, but tell me how, say, a white child, because so much of, of, of our discourse, our beliefs, are based on this is a black thing, this is an Asian thing, this is a Hispanic thing, and so we can't cross over into these uh, into these other areas. So, but I hear you saying something very different. So, talk to me. If a white child tunes into Rainbow Me, um, the the positive impact it can have on their life. I would say that we want all races and nationalities to be um, participating in the content within Rainbow Me because it gives everyone exposure, right? Just like the um, black child should learn about the Latino world. The white child should learn about the Latino and the black world and the Asian and vice versa. And I'll share an interesting story with you, which I think kind of captures what happens with kids, media. Um, there's a really popular show called Doc McStuffins that's on the air right now, which features a, a character that's a black female doctor. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a little girl, but she dresses up like a doctor. And um, she's African-American. So one of my good friends' wives is a is a physician. She's a doctor at a major hospital in Washington, D.C. And um, in comes a family, um, a white mother and her white son. And um, she's treating them, you know, and halfway through the appointment, the little boy looks up to his mother, little white boy looks up to his mother and says, Mom, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can be a doctor because I'm not a black woman. Hmm. It's deep, right? Hmm. Yeah. So... Those type of moments, right, really have to register that we need to change the face of children's entertainment to allow them to see a myriad of, of, of views and perspectives on, on opportunity, right? And who and what is America. Exactly. And so what I hear you saying with Rainbow Me, so it could be from wrong here, but what I hear you saying about Rainbow Me is that if, if you start there, then as these children become adults and some of them become venture capitalists, and some of them become involved in Silicon Valley, that's that's the way you would address what you were stating earlier about the unconscious bias. Yes, I would say so. That's, that's accurate. Talib Graves-Van, thank you for being on The Public Morality Today. Thank you, Byron. This has been excellent. Next time on The Public Morality, we speak with Melissa Botea, from the Center for American Progress on the issue of poverty. And after that, Molly Reynolds from the Brookings Institute will join us to discuss the state of the Republican Party next time on The Public Morality. Regardless of your political orthodoxy, politics has become a shirts versus skins enterprise. Shirts versus Skins is a common form of denoting team affiliations in playground basketball in the absence of uniforms. It also describes much of our political discourse in that our support is based more on who said it than what is said. If we happen to be a skin, 
We cheer wildly whenever our side utters something that coincides with our already held beliefs. But we also boo unmercifully when something is proposed by the other side, even if we might agree with it. This thought has managed to fortify gridlock, which has tragically become the new hallmark of our democratic republic. Who should bear the ultimate responsibility for our current dysfunction? Is it our elected officials, or is it those of us who continue to send the same people to Washington to represent us? Poll after poll consistently reveals that the American people give Congress low marks, with the exception of their particular representative. I am reminded of the words of George Bernard Shaw, Democracy is a device that ensures we shall be governed no better than we deserve. Until we reach the conclusion that we deserve better, much better, we have only the solace of being either a shirt or a skin to comfort us in our moments of frustration. Hardly a path that leads toward that more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank mm-hmm. you.